Change. I don't know about you, that word just makes me change. How many people actually like change? You? You don't like change. You like to change me. <laughs> sorry, that was on the microphone. I'm so sorry. I'm gonna, I'll try to edit that out for the online version. Um, but I mean, of the few hands that go up, I, if I were to ask that question a little differently, I, I, I think we'd find that most would prefer the change that we pick to change, right? This is what I want to change, or, or I want to change this in a specific way that we have in mind. Now, I was a regional operations manager for the Dish Network, and I had 43 vans in my fleet of service vehicles, and the territory ran from as far south as Warsaw all the way up to Iowa border. And as you can imagine, the vans had a lot of miles on them. In fact, we would typically retire them in somewhere between 230 and 280,000 miles. So these things were pretty beat up for as new as they were. But when the new van arrived, it was the newer model, typically, and it had some maybe updated features or some different shelving or something like that in the back. And, and the technician with the longest tenure usually had first right of refusal on this thing. And I always thought it fascinating that they weren't excited, that often they would like, they'd pass it down. So I'd, I'd rather not. Because they would prefer to stay with their current van because even though it was getting worn, it was familiar and comfortable, right? They knew the quirks, they knew where things went. Uh, it also turns out the newer vans had these GPSs that ratted on them if they sped. But that, I'd like to think that my staff never worried about that. But, um, so I'm, I'm currently rereading the first five books of the Bible. These are uh, the Pentateuch is what it's called, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'm doing it as part of my, my seminary study right now. But as I was reading the story of the Israelites' journey through the wilderness after being freed from Egypt, I noticed an underlying theme that is best captured in Exodus 14, 10 through 12. I'll read it. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Would it have been better for us to serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Think about that. They were serving, they were beaten, they were, they were captives. And they said it would have been better to do that because we know it. Leave us alone. And in Numbers 21, 4 through 5, kind of continues the story. It says, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Hmm. Exodus 16, 2 through 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died the, the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly of death. And just one more example, again from Exodus 17, 2-3. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us some water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us our children and livestock die of thirst? Now we know that God provided them this entire journey of Exodus. Not only did he provide the freedom, the escape, he delivered them from the captors many times, miraculous ways, many of them. He provided for them all along the way, food and water and all that they needed and miraculous signs and there was this teaching moment and then he provided the promised land at the end of this journey. 
But I counted 14 complaints, just in my own reading. I counted 14 complaints by the Israelites about this change in their life. Wouldn't it have been better just to stay there and continue to be beaten, you know? I can't imagine that they found slavery in Egypt to be comfortable, but perhaps their misery was familiar and what they had come to know and to expect as the way it is. The change from slave to free was neither comfortable or familiar as they were wandering through the wilderness with limited food and water, a mob of angry Egyptians on their tail and no way of knowing where they were going or how long this journey would take, which I believe was a part of the lesson. I often say it wasn't the promised land wasn't ready for them. They just weren't quite ready for it yet. Now, I read a commentary on this period of the Israelites' history and noted the author's observations. He said, complaining shows a resistance to change. Complaining shows a weakness in your patience. And complaining shows a lack of trust in God's planning and timing. Ouch. Anybody else ouch with that one? Complaining shows a lack of trust in God's planning and timing. And he just says, so don't complain. Okay, there it is. Um, <laughs> no, I, I haven't mastered that either. And I've read this guy's work a couple times already and it's still not there. Now, there was a show on television that had a lot of popularity popular at the time called Extreme Makeover, and that's kind of reflected in my title here. And there were actually a few variations of the show. The original aired from 2002 to 2007. It was based on physical appearance, right? They would bring these people in, and they'd do their hair and makeup, and they might even do some, some cosmetic surgery. And then there was a short version, um, just I think it lasted a year, it was the Extreme Weight Loss Makeover, and I think they found out that was rather unhealthy than what they were doing. And then there's this version that we're most familiar with, and that is um, the home edition, right? In this version, a family was chosen to have their house receive a makeover. And what this means is that their current house, which is usually in pretty bad need of repair or renovation or, or simply too small for this family, would be completely demolished, completely demolished and a new one built in its place in, in a relatively short time. And the family was usually one well-deserving. They had a need or they had been, you know, they were public servants or they had done something or adopted a large number of kids or whatever it may be. So these were feel-good stories of people that everybody's like cheering for, right? But at the end of the episode, there was this great reveal, right? They'd say, move this bus and they reveal this new house. Watch, let's watch this video clip together. touch people's lives but actually it's the other way around and I will forever be grateful to know that people out there care enough to touch a family's lives. Are you guys ready to see what's behind this bus? Yeah! a life-changing moment because when we first came here from the Philippines, I wanted to have a better life for my family, but the size of our old house was 586 square feet. 
And it was just a struggle trying to figure out how we could make it better. This new house is a symbol of new hope, a new beginning, and really being able to achieve that American dream. Your mortgage is paid for. <laughs> this new house, a new hope, a new beginning, so we can pursue the American dream, right? I think the American dream has taken a new meaning in the last couple of years, unfortunately, but I hope you can see the excitement of, of what this happens. Imagine, I think there were 65 of these homes that were, that were done and, and you know, he was a school teacher and, and uprooted his family. But anyway, it, as the title of this message suggests, Extreme Makeover Faith Edition, we're going to look at how God changes us, right? Renews us, renovates us. For the past few weeks, we've looked at how God designed us as both good and to be good. We've reflected on what that means and how all of us, since the very first man and woman, have fallen short of that original design and expectation. And if you look back over history, and I mean as, as recently as in our own lifetimes, you can see how we as a society have become comfortable and familiar with things that were considered completely unacceptable and inappropriate not so long ago. During the past few weeks, we've imagined what life on earth would be like if we were to restore the goodness to it and how that starts with us. How can we change for the better if we have become resistant to change of any kind simply because our current situation, our current perspective, or our routine is familiar and relatively comfortable for us? So what is the first step of any multi-step program? We may think it's to, to admit we have a problem, right? And, and that's partially true. But the real answer is honesty. Honesty. Admitting we have a problem is an honest answer. But we need to honestly say, I have something that needs to be changed within me. And I am powerless to make that change by myself. And that is actually one of the, the first steps is I have, I have an addiction that has controlled my life and I'm powerless over whatever this is. And most people stop it. I am powerless and call it a truth and give up hope, right? And they focus on I am powerless and they don't see the hope in by myself. People who find success, these programs don't do it alone. They have a counselor, a sponsor um, or mentor, but I, um, they have encouragement and support from others who share their struggles and, and they ask God for help. A lot of these programs are Christian programs. You may not be facing a drug or alcohol addiction, a pornography addiction or something similar, but I'm confident every single one of us is subject to a sin or disobedience to God's commandments for our lives. Pick one of these, but don't raise your hand. I mean, if, unless you feel called, but, and don't raise your spouse's hand. You shall have no other gods before me, right? Sounds pretty simple, but when you realize you're prioritizing other things over places in your heart, time in your life, use of your money, that you're putting other gods before him. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything else. There's something that you treasure so much you couldn't live without it. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Now we're off to a good start today. Honor your mother and your father. You shall not murder. That one sounds easy, right? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And that's the one we take as lying, right? Gossip, things like that. You shall not covet. It's another one. You see that car, you see that boat, you see that house, right? It's not that you don't want them to have it. You just kind of want it too. I hit a nerve with anybody else. But remember how Jesus further explained these in the Sermon on the Mount. This is found in Matthew 5. I'm going to start at verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Right? We've heard that. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Yes. But he says, But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now he's explaining it a little better. Verse 27. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or I'll say or another person lustfully has already committed adultery with that person in their heart. Jesus is explaining it a little differently. 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Boy, that's tough. And what about the rich man described in Matthew 19? Starting at verse 16, it says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to, to get eternal life, right? We're looking for that checklist. We're saying, what do I have to do to get what I'm promised? That blessing in this life, the promise for next life. And then Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He's saying, God told you what's, what's good. I've already explained to you. I'm here to teach you. What is good? And the man says, which ones? Okay, are we supposed to pick which, uh, which of the 10? Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, we read these. The man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth, right? You know, I often think, well, it's not just about the Ten Commandments, but it's about, you know, the priorities. But as I think about this now, even as I read it, did this man make an idol of his things? Did the man put some other gods before the one true God, right? Was he not doing what Jesus had commanded to love others because he was sad because he had so much to lose. But did the widow who gave that might not have more to lose? How are you doing with this list now? Now we've got the 10 and the additional and the explanation now. We see we've got some work to do. And the Hebrew word for change is shana. I've got this fancy new software. Thank you, dear. Um, shana is, is the word and it means to become different, okay? So it's more of a verb. It's, it's not, I am changed. I am changing. I'm becoming something new and different. So do you remember what it takes to change? It takes honesty, sponsorship, encouragement, and God. So let's take a look at this from a spiritual perspective with salvation as our end goal. You have a sponsor in Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. A couple things to take away from that. You have an advocate, right? 
you need an advocate and no one can advocate for you better than yourself or one who knows you even better than yourself. And that's Jesus Christ. And he's got God's attention. He's right at his right hand. You have a mentor through me as your, your pastor and teacher. And then hopefully you've got other mentors in your life as well. Perhaps you've got friends that, are, that uh, really study the word. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, which we've had the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach maturity and unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's a difference between pastoring and teaching, right? Teaching is is lecturing and pastoring is more guiding. And and so you need both in your lives and and hopefully you can count me among that, but I'm hopeful that you have other people in your lives too that kind of guide you in a relationship with Christ. And and if you've got a a, a best friend, a spouse, a, a brother or sister, these are the people that should be helping guide you and you should be guiding them. Third, you have encouragement and accountability, and that's through the church. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Spur each other on, encourage each other. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Friends, this was written 2,000 years ago. We are that much closer to that day. We don't know when it is, but we are closer to close than when these, these words of wisdom were given to us. So encourage one each other, support one another. So you have a sponsor, you've got a mentor, you've got encouragement and accountability. And last but certainly not least, you have God because he desires a relationship with you. John three sixteen, we know this. For God so loved the world, that is you and me, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And here's the kicker. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But this all starts with that very first step, and that's honesty. We as Christians call this step confession and repentance. And God promised to respond to this step. When you take this step, and we find this promise in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, he says, if my people, okay, if, it's your choice, your step to take. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. If we do this, then he will. And this is echoed in Romans ten thirteen and also Joel two thirty two. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, here's what is unique about the extreme makeover of faith. Unlike the plastic surgery, the hairstyle and the makeup with the big reveal, unlike the bus that gets moved and and reveal the finished home, salvation's great reveal is up front. It's up front. Once you've made that confession and repentance, you are made over. Okay? From Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 5.16, we read this as our verse to remember. From now on, therefore, regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, regard him thus no longer. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, once they've taken this step and said, I am a sinner, Lord, forgive me, come into my heart, make a change in my life. Once you've done that, he says, says, once you've done that, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's continue reading that, starting in verse 18. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. So again, this is Paul writing. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is great news. This is fantastic news. No waiting until the end for the big reveal. You are changed. Day one, hour one, minute one, second one. When you give your life to Christ and when you, if you need to re-give your life to Christ again because you feel like you've, you've drifted away, it starts right then. That's the reveal. That's the change. The old is dead. The new has come. But the work is just beginning. You will have trouble. Jesus promised that. We know that. And there's no greater, greater threat to Satan and his work in this world than someone who has passion for God and the story of Jesus Christ and the desire to share that story. And there's no greater prize for the devil than to create a stumbling point for that person. And this may not be a huge diversion, right? And, you know, sometimes we have these global pandemics. We have great loss in our life, right? And it may be that, and we pray against that. But sometimes it conceals itself in subtleties of our sinful nature, discouragement, infighting, things like that. And the, the distinct line become good and bad or blessing and sin it can get a little blurred, right? A little softened. Paul warns of this very thing as he wrote a letter to the early Christians in Rome. This is from Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, Paul's letters, as with most of the New Testament, were written in Greek. And to look at the original wording, we hear this message. And, and we, he says, do not sikismetene. Let's just imagine I said that right. And I've been practicing. Siskematizo, which is Greek. But what it actually means, which is the important part, is to shape your behavior. Don't shape your behavior to the word that means model, right? Don't conform to the pattern of this world. But what it really says is don't change your behavior. Don't shape your behavior to what the world has modeled for you. But be changed. And this word changed in Greek is the same word that we get metamorphosed metamorphosis from. Wow, I'm struggling. Right? So think caterpillar to butterfly. It is a complete change. It's not recognizable as what it was before. And he says this is done by the renewing or the reestablishment of your mind, which means understanding. Right? So don't shape your behavior to what the world has modeled, but let it change you completely by reestablishing your understanding. That is what almost the literal Greek translation means. And says, so then you will be able to test and approve or examine what God's will and desire is, right? You teachers in the room, those, those students, an examination is to prove that you know something or been taught something, right? So then you will be able to examine, to hold something up and know that you know it as his desire and plan for your life. Is real change possible? Yes. Yes, it is. In fact, it's actually impossible to prevent in this case. Remember the words renew, reestablish. 
Change isn't something to fear because God is in control of that change. We should desire to constantly be changing for the better, to never be comfortable or satisfied where we're at in our faith, to be more like Jesus Christ and in a closer relationship with God the Father. And that is an extreme faith makeover. I want to show this clip one more time just to kind of remind you of something, and then we're going to look at something else. They don't know what they're excited about. They just know it's something better. There are friends and family, neighbors, and people just excited to see this. And that's what, that's what this kind of change is about. So I went and I wanted to find something that speaks more to what a faith edition of a makeover looks like. And I found this video from another church. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, the heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And if we know history correctly, what happened after that day? Jesus put his hands to the plow, the work of his Father. Watch. He never looked back. The scripture tells us Jesus came preaching. And Jesus came teaching. And Jesus came healing. And his fame spread all across the Decapolis and cities as far as men could count. And he rearranged the whole world with his teaching. Gave women worth and value. Looked people in the eyes who felt like they was worth nothing and said, neither do I condemn you. He was the friend of sinners and the enemy of the religious. He came to set captives free. That water outside that pool, when you go out there, you're gonna see that pool with the water glistening in the sunshine. And when you see that pool, listen to me, that pool is a grave, a watery grave. And you're gonna step down into that warm, watery grave and you're gonna sit down. And when you sit down, you're gonna stare at that crystal clear water. And in that moment, I want you to get on your mind everything you've done from your past. Every mistake, every sin, everything that has been bothering you up until this very moment. Every lie the devil has told you in your ear, every insecurity, every worry, every fear, every anxiety, every sickness, every disease. You get everything on your mind that has been plaguing your life right up to this moment. And men and women of God who've been praying all week, we're gonna put you down in that watery grave. And when we submerge you, you will symbolically leave in that watery grave everything you have carried from your past. You leave it in those waters. 
and when you rise you would rise to songs of worship and the chairs of a church standing behind you it's gonna sound something like this something like this scriptures that heaven is going to be opened up over you and you'll come up and hear the Spirit of God whispering to you my son my daughter I love you and in you I am well pleased stuff that's how it's done and if you i gotta tell you if you didn't have that kind of experience when you were baptizing let me tell you what scripture says that's what's going on in heaven at that moment there is countless multitude of angels heavenly hosts up there celebrating just like that just like that in the presence of god and then i changed the slide because that is jesus coming out when he was baptized jesus needed to be baptized how much more do we and that started his ministry. That wasn't the culmination of his ministry. So never think that, that you know, we check that box. We, we've, we've given our heart to the Lord and asked him in our life. And we are done because the work is just getting started. You are now an ambassador for Christ. For your life and those around you. If you want that to be you and you haven't made that decision, there's no greater time than immediately. If you have and you need to reboot, that's okay. There's no greater time than immediately. And if you've already made that decision, praise God, whether you felt that celebration at that moment or not, that's what happened for you. And we still celebrate that today. God specifically intended a kind of joy, peace, and blessing specific to you by name. And that's what you're redeeming. And let's make that our prayer. Father God, we resist change because we like to be in control. We like to know, we like to do, we like to, to just not be surprised. But Father God, we just get in your way when we do stuff like that. So we pray for a change of our heart, a change of our perspective, to come overcome any fear, any addiction, anything that is holding us back from a right relationship with you. Lord, protect our hearts from these same things. And don't let the negativity of, of anyone around us or any cynicism we have of the world get in our heart. Lord, protect us. Let us feel that kind of joy. And remember, if we made that promise, it doesn't matter if it was 60 years ago or 60 seconds ago, that is the passion that we are called to have. 
Lord, we are your ambassadors and just as important, we are your children. And we celebrate that. Let us continue to change as guided by you to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, to be in a closer relationship with you so that when we are called home, we can hear those amazing words. Well done, good and faithful child. Amen.